Do you have the reflexes and the patience to lead Lester to safety? Well, let's find out with Another World this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Upper Memory Blog Podcast. It is, in fact, episode number 48, and we are here once again to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. Really excited to be here. We got away from me a little bit, so show's a little late coming out, but uh, I guess that's the way things go. It was my birthday last week, so stuff got kind of pushed around, and then we had stuff at work and stuff at home and mortgage things and all kinds of craziness, so... Uh, whatever. Uh, it's nice. I finally, I got to go skiing yesterday, probably for the last time. Cause, uh, spring is here hopefully now. Uh, although I have, my parents told me in Montreal there's snow, so, uh, that's not really awesome, but, uh, nice here. I'm looking out the window. The, uh, the sun is out. The sun is shining. I might go for a run later cause, uh, it's relatively warm out even though I was skiing yesterday, <laughs> but all that aside, uh, we got a really, 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 really big show this week with a lot of uh, a lot of stuff to go through so uh, let's jump right into things and uh, get to the news so first things first here uh, this isn't a news story but there are a few corrections to be made on the last show that I did uh, regarding beneath a steel sky uh, trolls the space quest historian got back to me with a few little uh little inconsistencies so firstly uh, I said the game was rendered in 640 by 480 this is not uh, in fact, the case, it's actually rendered in standard 320 by 200 VGA. Uh, and secondly, the music, which I reported as uh, being composed by composer David Lowe, is not, uh, it, well, that's not the case. It's uh, a, It was originally composed by Dave Cummins, who also uh, wrote the game. Now, I did find references to David Lowe, which is why uh, I said that he had done the music, but uh, it's possible, if I look uh, a little more closely, that he probably converted the music for the Amiga version or something to that effect. So a little correction there. And finally, with regard to uh, the last episode on Beneath the Steel Sky, uh, this isn't a correction, but I just found out literally about an hour ago uh, from the Trolls, the Space Quest historian, uh, if you do remember from his uh, his segment that he was mentioning that... uh, you know, he was trying to get in contact or he has been trying to get in contact with Dave Cummins, the writer of uh, Beneath the Steel Sky, and uh, he hasn't been successful. And uh, he hasn't Dave Cummins, in fact, hasn't really been heard from in quite a few years, both in the uh, Beneath a Steel Sky community and kind of just on the Internet in general. Well, unfortunately, I'm, I'm sad to report that uh, I've been informed by trolls that uh, Dave Cummins passed away back in uh, in 2008. This is really sad news. I'm sad to report it, but uh, you know, at least we know why uh, why he hasn't been uh, hasn't been around. So, in happier news, uh, back on March 18th, GOG, uh, Good Old Games, announced that they would be bringing uh, more of their game library over to Linux. Uh, this is great news, and and it makes me wonder. If this is in response to uh, to Steam's you know new uh, Linux-based Steam OS that's kind of out in beta, pseudo out, and their Steam machines and all that. Either way, more OS compatibility is a great thing. Linux gaming is a great thing. 
you know, op- free open source operating systems, uh, you know, engender a lot more innovation. It, it lowers barrier to entry to, to doing certain things, to getting a machine, to building custom user interfaces, to building, you know, specific use case machines, such as something like a steam box, kind of a, a gaming a console type emulating gaming machine. So really cool news. And, uh, I'm interested to see, you know, how much further they get. I know steam is also pushing out a lot more, uh, Linux based games and, uh, yeah. Next, I was listening to the Gamers with Jobs conference call uh, either this week or last week. I think it might have been last week. And they interviewed none other than uh, Julian Gollup, the creator of XCOM. Uh, Now, he's got a new Kickstarter launching called Chaos Reborn. Now, this is a remake of a really cool turn-based tactics game that he actually designed and released uh, before the original XCOM. I'm not sure of the date. I'd have to go look it up, but uh, seems cool. Modern remake, all kinds of customization and emergent gameplay and all kinds of crazy stuff like that. All those cool words that we like to say. Uh, So they are currently about, as of this morning, $70,000 shy of their $180,000 goal. So they were right around $108,000 when I last checked. Uh, and they have 17 days left on their campaign, so there's still some time to uh, to get in there. As always, you can search for Chaos Reborn on uh, Kickstarter, and as always, I will link the Kickstarter page in the show notes for this episode. Next, in some tangentially related Microsoft news, Microsoft isn't usually a company that I talk about a ton on, uh, on this show, but uh, last week, the company open-sourced the original uh, code to MS-DOS version 1.1 and an early version of Microsoft Word for Windows. Not really sure what bearing this has on DOS gaming, but uh, I thought it was pretty cool that uh, if we, if I wanted to, I could pop in and see, uh, you know, see the source for, uh, for MS-DOS version 1.1, kind of very early uh, version of DOS. Most games that I talk about uh, probably need about DOS 5 to do what they do, but some of the earlier ones will run on DOS 1.1. So very, very cool, and uh, hey, why not? You want to take a look at some code? Let's take a look. So finally, in the news, uh, last week was the 25th anniversary of the release of one of my favorite adventure games of all time, Space Quest III, The Pirates of Pestulon. Uh, There was some hubbub on Twitter, so I thought I'd make a note of it here. As always, I continue to follow the uh, the development of uh, Space Venture from uh, the two guys from Andromeda, and I'm really, really looking forward to it. Now, Space Quest 3 wasn't the first Space Quest game that I played. Uh, I'd have to go back. When was the Space Quest episode? Episode 5? Long time ago. Uh, but uh, when I did play it, I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I love the music from that game. I, I think I use it. Actually, no, I do use the uh, the music from that game in, uh, in the promo I have for this show that uh, gets played on... Uh, some of my friends' podcasts, so uh, it definitely has uh, an important place in my in my in my gaming uh, in my gaming life. I come to think of it now that I, I didn't actually have this in my notes, but uh, now that I was thinking back to episode five, this would actually be this episode here, uh, right here at the end of March, will mark the uh, the second anniversary of the podcast. I wasn't even paying attention. I know that I basically started the podcast about a week after my birthday, and this is uh, about a week after my birthday. So uh, happy second anniversary to the show. So glad that uh, that I'm still around, that I'm, I'm still uh, super excited to do it. It, it kind of makes me really happy when I put out a new episode and, and you know, you guys interact and we all talk and have cool debates and stuff and give our opinions and memories about about old games so uh, i'm really happy with the way the show has grown in the past two years and um yeah i never thought 
I mean, I don't know. I, I never thought that maybe I'd be doing it for two years straight. I hope to do it for another two years, another four years, another five years till, uh, till you guys don't want to hear me talk anymore. So as always, thank you for listening. I know I say it all the time, but I don't feel like I can ever say it enough. I do appreciate everyone listening and all the, uh, all the interaction I get. So to quote Commander Kilbasa from Space Quest 6, thank you, 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 and thank you. Okay, so to begin a show, an email full show, we've got half an email from Eric Andre, and Eric Andre writes, Hi, Mr. M., Thanks for another great episode covering Beneath a Steel Sky. I think I would have to rate this as my favorite adventure game where you are able to die. The game starts out really hard, as you most likely die a couple of times in the very first scene, trying to figure out how to get away from the guard. I remember thinking I had to fight the guard, or timely uh, escape before, uh, or sorry, or timely escape before discovering the solution to this puzzle. In retrospect, I always find the ability to die a bit strange. Those who have completed the game know that Robert dying would actually not be the worst case scenario. As you mentioned, the virtual theater was really impressive. However, I remember at one point where I got stuck in the elevator while a character, Joey or Lamb, uh, was blocking my exit. It seemed like a bug, but they eventually moved, proving both the disadvantage and cleverness of the system. I also have to praise James Woodcock for his private hobby project of enhancing the soundtrack of Beneath the Steel Sky, as well as Simon the Sorcerer, the Seventh Guest, and quite a few others. Do you know why Revolution started to give away their game? I'm not sure if they published their source code in the open, but they did at least give it to the Scum VM team. They realized that a DOS-based game was uh, not very accessible any longer. Together with Lure of the Temptress, they started giving away their old games, and Scum VM shortly added support for this engine. Most, I believe most people think it was GOG.com who started giving it away, but this happened already in 2003. So that's one half of, uh, of Eric Andre's email. I'll read the other half down uh, at the bottom of the show because it's more about, uh, about our main topic for the day. But, uh, you know, thanks for that half email, <laughs> Eric Andre. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I had always been reading about the fact that um, Beneath the Steel Sky was being given away for free. And, um, you know, I thought it was quite cool. And um, yeah, no, I definitely heard about that before I actually knew that GOG.com existed at all. So um, no, it was pretty cool. And um, and it makes sense, you know, like you have these games on operating systems that nobody has anymore. And what are you going to do? You're going to hold on to it and say, no, no one can play this game ever again because they have to maintain a DOS machine. And we're going to hold on to our IP and hold on to our money. Frankly, they don't have to give it away. I mean, they could still sell it. They just have to do what GOG does and, you know, package it properly. And and it's cool that GOG kind of created this market because now it lets us play all these old games that I really love. And, you know, GOG is like my godsend for this show to keep things running properly because if a game's on GOG, I know I don't have to worry. I don't have to futz around setting things up and maybe there's a weird bug that doesn't let it work in DOSBox. They, They figured all that out. So really great. Glad Beneath the Steel Skies is free because it really breaks down the uh, the one barrier to entry, which is if you don't want to spend any money, and because it's done through GOG and it runs on ScumVM, no problem. Even the technical aspects of like, oh, how am I going to get this running? I have to deal with an emulator, blah, blah, blah. It's done. So game is free. Download it, click install, play. Wonderful game, as I said last week. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Overview. 
Okay, so on to the main event, and this is a big one. It's much bigger, actually, than uh, than I even realized. This week, we are discussing another world, or as it was known to me here in North America, out of this world. Uh, this game was originally developed and published by Delphine Software back in 1991. Uh, more likely than not, I'll be calling it by its original name, Another World, throughout the show. As we tend to do, let's talk genre. Another World is of a genre that I haven't really touched on very much throughout the show up to, uh, up to this point. This game is considered a cinematic platformer. Uh, I've touched on platformers at least once before with uh, the early Duke Nukem games, and I do promise to feature more of them. I know I have a standing request from Alima to cover Jill of the Jungle one of these days, and I do plan on doing that. Uh, but that aside, a platform game puts you, the player, in control of an avatar. Your general goal is to guide your avatar across the game's terrain by jumping across a series of suspended platforms. Aside from these jumping challenges, many, many other obstacles are put in your way, including things like bottomless shafts, deadly spikes, and a whole whack of enemies. You may have uh, the traditional platformer offensive ability of jumping on your enemy's head, or you may be equipped with some form of weapon, some form of weapon, such as a gun, sword, simple fighting moves. So you do sometimes have, uh, have or generally most of the time, have some form of, uh, of offensive ability as well. So I think I said this in the Duke Nukem show, but I always kind of considered platformers to be the primordial video game genre. This is the genre that uh, non-gamers think of when you say the word video game to them. You know, it's kind of like Mario and load runner and like you know stuff like that depending on their age and you know what what year they they had any experience at all kind of casually gaming in this is probably what they'll think of maybe less so these days but you know back in back in the time of this show that's kind of what i think so now we know what a general platformer is but what's a cinematic platformer well a cinematic platformer takes the the very gamey nature of a standard platformer and focuses very much more on realism. That is, there's a focus on fluid and lifelike movements and much more realistic physics. Uh, while the game still focuses on jumping, the act of jumping is much more within the realm of human ability. In addition, things like falling from a great height or uh, you know, taking a hit usually result in death. So because of this, they tend to feature more vulnerable heroes who die from one or two hits or, and, you know, progressing through a game of this type where death is so easy, uh, tends to be a matter of trial and error. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, time for the story. Uh, Another World is a very unique game. While there is virtually no explicit exposition and virtually no verbal interaction in the game, it has a very engaging story and takes place in a very well-developed, albeit somewhat mysterious, uh, kind of world. In the introduction sequence, we are introduced to Lester Knight Chaikin, a brilliant young physicist. Without sounding too cheesy, it is a dark and stormy night. We're outside of a dark building. Suddenly, a Ferrari smoothly pulls up to the building. Out comes Lester. He has red hair, and he's wearing a simple black t-shirt and pants. He enters the building, which turns out to be a high-security and high-tech physics lab. After interacting with the lab's computer system to authenticate himself, 
He sits at a large console which controls a particle accelerator. As many particle physicists do, Lester is attempting to recreate the conditions at the beginning of the universe by accelerating particles and causing them to collide at incredible speed. So he's kind of trying to reproduce the conditions of the Big Bang. He begins the experiment, known simply as Project 23, and disables one of the three shields in the particle accelerator. Now, I don't know if that contributes to what happens next, but it's definitely possible. As the experiment is running, we are reminded again of the thunderstorm raging outside. Well, it's not for no reason. At the critical moment, right before the particles collide with each other, lightning strikes the lab. This causes what is called unforeseen particle fusion, which zaps Lester and his control console and desk into apparent nothingness. This is not the case, though. As we soon see, the accident actually rips a hole in space and time, which results in Lester and his desk ending up submerged in water and quickly sinking. So that's that for the story setup. Now, keep in mind, almost none of this is done through text or speech aside from some readouts on the computer screen. All this info is communicated visually through fluid animation, art, and music. So we're at the point where Lester is sinking deeper underwater. Up until now, we've been sitting back observing. This was a cutscene with an introduction sequence. Now, at this point, we're into the game and we are expected to act. However, the game never tells this to us. Eventually, Lester will sink too deep and he will drown, causing him to die, causing the screen to go black, and telling you to press the action button to continue. Uh, if you do nothing, he'll just keep dying over and over and over again. Eventually, you, or me, <laughs> this time around, as the player, uh, come to the realization that the intro's over and you have to do something. Again, the game tells you nothing. It'll just keep letting you die. Well, what can we do? This is a platformer, so we can usually control our character's movements. Also, since we hopefully read the manual, we know a few controls. Another world supported both keyboard and joystick control. So let's say we've got a joystick. Lester is sinking again and again. Maybe we should try pushing up on the joystick. Success! Lester swims up and off the screen. On the second screen, we need to continue to hold up while Lester climbs out of what turns out to be a large square pool. Once we stand up, we can see that we are standing on what looks like a barren rocky field filled with mesas and cliffs and all that stuff. Also, two moons hang in the sky. We are definitely no longer on Earth. You may also notice, though I didn't the first time, uh, that there is a large black mass standing on a ridge in the background. As Lester climbs out of the water, it turns on four legs and runs off. This is our first taste of another aspect of another world's gameplay. Situational awareness is key, as things happening in the background will give us clues as, uh, as to what obstacles we may have coming up. That large scary animal is not likely to have been put there for no reason at all. So once we're on our feet, we can get a handle on the full range of actions we currently have access to. Lester can run left and right. He can jump in a very realistic, non-superhuman kind of crappy manner. Uh, in fact, it's almost more of a skip than a jump. 
As for defense or offense, uh, Lester currently has the ability to deliver a kind of weak-kneed, measly kick. Uh, It's probably about the degree of physicality you'd expect from a brilliant physicist. So if we walk right one screen, uh, we're faced with some grub-looking things slowly moving across the bottom of the screen. They seem harmless enough, right? Well, let's walk by them. When we do, we'll notice that they deploy a poison barb. They scratch your leg, and you instantly die. After some trial and error, maybe dying a few more times, uh, you figure out you can either kick them with your weak nerd kick, or simply jump over them. On the next screen, we see more of the grubs. However, this time, some of them are also hanging out on top of the overhanging rocks. Uh, Here, on this screen, we find out they can also fall and attack you from above. So bypassing them as well, either by kicking them or jumping over them, we get to the third screen. Ah, there's nothing here. We are finally safe. Thank God. Well, not so much. Remember that large hulking black animal thing we casually noticed in the first screen? Well, if you've still been paying attention, he's sort of been following Lester in the background of all the other screens we've gone through. Well, here's where we meet up. Halfway across the screen, he jumps in front of us and begins to rush. If he gets too close, we are big black predator food. After trying to kick him a few times and playing with our line, you know, paying for it with our lives, we realize that the only thing left to do is run away. Either that or you write a walkthrough that says, when the thing comes, you better run away. So this is a sort of uh, a very good illustration of, of the general gameplay throughout the game. Pretty much every screen in another world is basically some sort of puzzle which has one or very few, maybe two, possible solutions. The only way to figure things out is via trial and error. Controls are straightforward, move, jump, and attack. You just got to figure out how to use those controls where you are and the terrain around you to get away from whatever threat is currently facing you. So soon after the black monster you end up being captured by an alien race. At this point, your goal becomes clear. You need to escape, hopefully, back to Earth. So escaping captivity, you come across an alien ally who helps you through your adventure. Now, in the documentation and history of the game, he's simply known as Buddy, but uh, a lot of people call him Matsuba because that's the thing that he says to you when uh, when you first escape and uh, you guys have a second to talk. Just like that. At this point, you also pick up a laser pistol. Now, this pistol has three separate modes of operation. Pressing fire fires a simple laser shot. Holding fire down for a short time deploys a temporary shield that absorbs enemy fire. Holding it down longer fires a charged shot that can take down force fields and destroy walls. Kind of very useful uh, useful types of uh, activities. Since Lester grabs this gun from an unconscious alien guard, the other armed aliens also have these same capabilities, and they definitely use them. As far as I can see, I don't think there's a uh, a difficulty setting on this game. There may be, but I I don't think there is. And uh, so, you know, the aliens are are somewhat smart. They'll deploy, you know, they'll they'll deploy shields, they'll duck, they'll jump, they'll do, they'll they'll try and avoid, you know, being killed just like uh, cannon fodder, because they're a bit smarter than that. So as I said, since the game is trial and error based, dying doesn't really incur a huge penalty. You simply revert to the last checkpoint you passed. Now in the current version of the game that I played, the 20th anniversary edition, there's quite, there's a lot of checkpoints. Basically, um, 
There's never an indication that you've passed a checkpoint, but they're placed close enough together so you don't usually have to redo major kind of difficult action sequences over and over again. My understanding is that in the original version of the game, the uh, the checkpoints were a little bit further apart, causing a little bit more frustration, but uh, over the years they've, uh, they've fixed that. So that's that for gameplay. Let's roll onward. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, so I am going to merge tech focus and dev story this time around since the technical aspects and innovations of this game are very much, more than most games I talk about, married to the story of its development. So right at the beginning, uh, I mentioned how this game was developed and published by Delphine Software. Well, on the box, that's what it says, but this isn't really entirely the case. Another world was developed by one man, Eric Shahi. Now, Shahi was born October 21st, 1967 in Essonne, France. Eric's first exposure to computers was through, the Z- was through a Sinclair ZX81 at his high school. Uh, he quickly took an in- intense liking to programming. However, since he was in the electronics stream at his school, all his computer programming work had to be done at home. He wasn't really focusing on computer science. It was more kind of like nuts and bolts, electronics, things like that. So every night he sat down in front of his own personal computer, which was an Auric one with a one megahertz, uh, Motorola, I think was it a Motorola. Anyways, a one megahertz, 6502 CPU and, uh, either 16 or 48 K of Ram. I don't know exactly which model he had. I'm hoping it was the 48 K one. Cause wow, that's a crap ton of Ram to work with. Anyways, uh, It was pretty comparable to uh, the Sinclair computers of the time, including the popular Sinclair ZX Spectrum. Within four weeks of kind of starting to sit down and doing this in the evening, he had created two games that uh, he was actually able to sell via a game company named Loricell. Uh, This was 1983. Eric was 16 years old, if my math is correct, and I'm pretty sure it is because I used a calculator. (laughs) Uh, by 1986, he had, uh, left his studies behind. He likely finished high school. I'm not sure how, what the age is for, uh, graduating high school in France. Any of my French listeners feel free to, um, feel free to let me know. 19 sounds about right. But, uh, at this point he decided not to continue his education and go and work for Loricelle full time. This was during the development of Le Pacte, an adventure game that he was working on for the Amstrad CPC. Around 1987, he left Logiciel, sorry, Logiciel, that's it, Logiciel is how you say program in French, but uh, this is called Logiciel, and I spelt it wrong on my notes, which made me say it wrong, because I'm awesome. Anyways, he left that company and uh, moved to a company called Chip, where he worked on, I believe, three other games, uh, one called Voyage au Centre de la Terre, which is uh, French for Voyage to the Centre of the Earth. Uh, another game called Danger Street, and I believe another one called Jeanne d'Arc, which is French for Joan of Arc, or actually Joan of Arc is English for Jeanne d'Arc because she was French. So lots of stuff going on there, three games, blah, blah, blah. Two years later, 1989, a new opportunity revealed itself. Eric moved to a company called Delphine Software to work on graphics, so he wasn't programming at this point. He was working as a graphic artist for... Uh, for Delphine's upcoming adventure game, Les Voyageurs du Temps, La Menace, which is uh, known in English as Future Wars Time Travelers, which is funny because that's not actually the proper 
translation, but I guess the marketing guys in English didn't want to call it Time Travelers, the threat, <laughs> which would, I guess, be the uh, the direct translation. Uh, this game was pretty notable because it was, uh, it was a really good looking adventure game that was designed by Paul Cusset, who I believe is, uh, I don't know off the top of my head, but I believe he's a fairly well-known, uh, French game designer from the time. Future Wars sold really, really well. And, uh, Eric kind of had an arrangement, uh, a royalty setup. So royalty payments from the success of Future Wars, uh, kind of left Eric with, with some steady income. Since he could put out foot, put food on the table without, uh, you know, having to be beholden to anyone for a while, he had a choice. He could work with Crisset on his next game called Operation Stealth, which would be another adventure. He was he he had worked well with Crisset, and uh, he was invited to come and do art on that game as well. Or he could venture off, live off his royalties for a while, and try to develop his own game from the ground up. If he did this, though, it would be totally independent. He wouldn't be related to Delphine Software. He wouldn't be receiving a paycheck, anything like that. So he had some stuff to think about. Uh, One big challenge he faced going off on his own was that Shahid was now about two years out of date in his programming experience as he had focused in in, uh, kind of art design and, uh, you know, art (laughs) in general, producing and designing art for Future Wars. This didn't phase him too much, though, since uh, there were many, many books and tools available to help him get up to speed on his new target platform, the Commodore Amiga. He programmed before. He didn't see why he couldn't program again. So at the time, Eric was playing around with the Amiga version of Don Bluth's Dragon's Lair. Uh, He was impressed that the programmers who did the conversion were able to take the high-res graphics from uh, the LaserDisc arcade version of the game and convert them to lower resolution, but still pretty impressive looking flat color animations on the Amiga. They were definitely a lot jaggier. The colors weren't quite as you know plentiful or vivid as uh, they were in the arcade, but the game still looked pretty damn good. However, the problem with this was that the Amiga version spanned six discs and only represented a few rooms from the full arcade game. This, of course was because the bitmapped graphics took up way too much space. In a bitmap, each pixel in the image is represented by a 32-bit value in an array stored within the bitmap file. Because of this, the size of a bitmap is directly proportional to the size of the image it represents, less some fixed values for file headers and other required kind of data structures. So bitmaps were not a very efficient way to store photo information, but at the time, uh, you know, things like JPEG compression, GIF or GIF, whatever you want to call it, PNG, all kind of these really good online compatible, small, compressible um, image formats didn't really exist. You had to go with a bitmap. Shahi figured that he could use vector-based outlines to achieve a similar, if slightly more angular effect. These vectors could simply be stored as a series of numerical values in memory or in a file on disk. This would take up much, much less space and allow a programmer to cram much more game data into a single low-density game disk. I don't think Amiga disks were even at 1.44 meg. They might have been the lower-density ones, 360K, something like that. Amiga people, I didn't have an Amiga. Let me know. What was the density? What was the uh, the storage capacity of, uh, of Amiga disks? So with this idea in mind, like any good programmer would, he decided to give his vector-based animation idea a go. 
he started off writing his routines in C, but he couldn't get the results he was looking for using what, at the time, was a fairly high-level programming language. There was a lot of abstraction in C, so you couldn't really get down into the nuts and bolts of where things went in memory, how much they used, when they were destroyed, blah, blah, blah. I'm not even talking C++, and I'm definitely not talking C Sharp here. I'm just talking straight, basic C, the thing I did for one class in university and then never touched again because it's awful. C didn't do what he wanted. He got down into the weeds with assembly language. So he wrote his test polygon routine for the Motorola 68000 processor on an Atari ST. Now, this is the problem with development in assembly language. Since it's a low-level language, each processor, or at least each processor manufacturer, tends to build different instruction sets into their CPUs. So if you write for the Motorola 68000, your program won't run on an Intel 8086-based CPU or PowerPC or whatever else, a Texas Instruments processor, anything like that. Regardless of, of these limitations of assembly language, his proof of concept was successful because assembly language is really, really good at doing what he needed, really, really good at directly addressing memory, really, really good at doing things quickly with small amounts of code, well, large amounts of code to do simple things, but very, very fast, low-level code to do those very simple things, which is why sometimes it takes more code to do those things. But I'm not going to talk about that right now, going off on a tangent. So his proof of concept was successful. And uh, in fact, really cool thing is that in the 20th anniversary edition of the game, uh, there's a scan of one of Shahi's technical documents, which maps out his polygon routines. You see the data structures, the logic flow. It's amazing to see his pencil-drawn diagrams, to see where, uh, you know, where he maps out byte by byte how polygon data will get stored in memory. He said, you know, I'll store this in the first byte of this word, I'll store this in the second byte of this word, and then these four bytes are going to be for this. It's, it's actually really cool. If you're a programmer, if you're not a programmer, it's pretty meaningless drivel, but... I'm a programmer, so I find these things incredibly interesting. God, I'm a huge nerd. He later got his routine uh, running on an Amiga and saw that using the platform that he intended to release the game on, uh, he was able to use it to create animations which ran at a very respectful 20 frames per second. Now, with this performance number under his belt, he was convinced that he could make a game using this polygon system as a base for a game engine. Now, getting back to Dragon's Lair, the other thing that Eric loved about it was the fluidity of animation. He wanted to capture the same effect in his game. You know, one tried-and-true method of accomplishing this was rotoscoping. Simply put, and anyone who works in animation or art, please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that rotoscoping is a technique whereby an artist traces animation on top of live footage, usually frame by frame, this creates animation with incredibly nuanced and lifelike movement, since it's based on recordings of reality. Obviously, manually creating an effect like this is very time-consuming. However, the Amiga supported something called genlocking. Genlock, or generator lock, is a technique where the signal of one video source is used to synchronize other video devices. Again, since I'm not an animator, I'm not sure of the details of how this works, but gen locking made the production of rotoscoped animations easier, at the very least, for uh, Eric on the Amiga. Initially, he also wanted to create the game's backgrounds in this polygonal system, again, to save space. But they took a very, very long time to design, and they required very, very small polygons to do small details in the background. So he ended up going with... Uh, with the more traditional bitmap group for that aspect of things. 
So all this time, well, Shahi had worked quite hard in figuring out how he would build out his game engine and, you know, map the animations for his game, he hadn't yet thought very hard about what exactly his game would be about. Uh, He started spitballing some basic concepts and ended up with the idea of making a science fiction game somewhat inspired by the 1984 Commodore 64 game Impossible Mission. One of his main intentions for the game was for it to be cinematic and dramatic. He also intended for it to be a departure from the more traditional arcade-style games of the day. To accomplish this, there'd be no user interface cluttering the screen, no status text, no point system, no high score, no tutorial, no instructions in-game. It was just you in the world trying to figure out what to do. Now, he was a pretty smart guy, and since he was breaking new ground with his engine and animation techniques, uh, Eric knew he'd likely run into problems and would not have much time to invest in a deep and complex story. So instead of writing out a detailed script, uh, you know, detailed script, event sequences, storyboards, all this kind of thing, Eric decided to let the game evolve naturally. To accomplish this, he made sure that the characters, animations, and environments evoked a strong sense of ambiance and of natural narrative pacing. To allow himself to focus on these environments and animations, instead of getting lost in hundreds of lines of code, Shahi realized he needed a tool to simplify creation of the game objects and the scripting of their behavior. He built a game editor in a language known as GFA Basic. This allowed him to manipulate his game objects via a point-and-click interface. It allowed visual editing and real-time playback of animation changes by the game engine directly. In effect, without realizing it, Shahi had created his own custom animation sequencer. So, it's now December of 1989. Eric has his engine in place, and he has his tools to simplify the process of game creation. It's time to stop concepting and get down to it. The game was truly created in a linear fashion. He started from the absolute beginning with the intro sequence. Now, the intro, as cool as it looks, is not pre-rendered. The whole game, cinematics and everything, are rendered in-engine. This first stab at things was in part the most logical way to begin and also gave Eric the chance to see exactly what the limitations of his engine were. This first exploration set the tone for the rest of the development. It was all about seeing what he could do and experimentation. So he developed the first draft, let's say, of each level in order. Lester, the protagonist, uh, became an avatar for Eric himself. Lester and the situations he finds himself in on every level were very evocative of Shahi's feelings, anxieties, and experiences at the time he created them. For example, in the entire first level of the game, Lester is completely alone and under constant threat from unknown forces. Shahi states that at the time uh, he was working on this level, uh, you know, he was working on it with very, very little social contact. He was just kind of in his room, in his house, doing it, not talking to anyone. This feeling of isolation translated directly into this early level of the game. In fact, his inclusion in the second level, right at the beginning of an ally, was tangentially related to his feeling of isolation. In interview, uh, he says that he included the alien ally, aka Buddy, as a means of creating some basic interaction to pull you further into the world. However, 
the fact that he speaks an unknown language creates even more of a sense of helplessness and loneliness. You can't communicate with the one thing in the entire world that isn't trying to kill you, and that is immensely frustrating. Aside from his own feelings, he pulled in aspects of sci-fi that he loved. Comics, fantasy art, series like Dune and Hyperion, all of these things influenced the game world. You can definitely see influences from Dune and the desert planet of Arrakis in some of the outdoor vistas. Eventually, he added a laser pistol into the game. Now, this was influenced by the gunplay in Star Wars. However, it also gave the player a tool to use and opened up many, many more gameplay options. Shahi was also a big fan of Dragon Ball at the time. He attributes the look of the charged pistol shot directly to that anime series. So things are moving along pretty well. While Eric was doing all the programming and artistic work on the game, he brought in a high school friend, Jean-Francois Freitas, to compose the music. Eric has some, had some kind of vague ideas for what kind of music he wanted in the game, but nothing specific as we've seen is kind of his way to start from very vague ideas and whittle them down into, uh, into something tangible. Uh, he kind of felt like the, the music would arrange itself. So he gave Jean-Francois the theme to Back to the Future as, uh, as inspiration. He said he felt like it had a somewhat military kind of drum snare line in it, and he liked that because it felt very military and oppressive and, you know, difficult to escape. Somehow, from there, from kind of the very different uh, Back to the Future theme... Uh, they got to the ambient and dreamlike music that ended up in the game. They also tried a little experiment with the end title music, where they uh, transferred from the cool kind of dreamy style into a hard guitar solo. At the end, you know, Jean-Francois kind of did a couple things, and they felt it didn't really work right and, uh, and went back into kind of the theme of, of dreamlike music. JF also helped with the game's sound effects. Uh, the two had no sound design or fully experience whatsoever, so they tried all kinds of different things to get the sounds they wanted. They recorded sounds from crushing tomatoes, crushing nuts, a dot matrix printer, and even their own voices saying nonsense for the aliens, including... Matsuwa. I think that is actually uh, Eric Shahi saying that with kind of all kinds of weird uh, modifications and filters and stuff on his voice. So after a total of 17 months of development, the game was only about a third done. Obviously, this was a bit of an issue. Uh, it couldn't take like four years to finish this game. 
Eric had been very focused on uh, creating cool and unique art for everything and realized that he probably had to start doing things more efficiently. He started reusing some resources and creating more building block type polygon groups. So instead of building each new element from scratch, he'd already have things pre-built like doors, elevators, and other utility objects kind of ready to go. He also didn't have a publisher for the game yet, so he started shopping it around. He first brought it to Delphine, who liked it and kind of gave him an offer, but uh, he also visited other publishing houses, you know, to do his due diligence. Virgin Interactive, in particular, liked the concept of the game, and they liked the world and and everything about it, but they thought it'd sell better as a point-and-click adventure. We're kind of getting into 1990, the rise of adventure gaming, so they kind of thought, hey, let's play off that. This could be a cool adventure, and frankly, I think it could have been. Eric actually did seriously consider it for a minute or so, but quickly realized it would be way too much work. Also, unless all his friends were lying to him, he had a fun game on his hands. You know, they, they, they had tried it out and they enjoyed it. So despite the shopping, he ended up accepting the offer from Delphine in July of 1991. Now, offer in hand, the game wasn't done yet. So to map things out, he partially abandoned his free-flowing development style and wrote out the rest of the game via storyboards. He was able to meet uh, Delphine's 1991 deadline, but it was grueling and exhausting. And as he'd been doing all the way through, Lester's state of mind matched that of uh, Eric Shahi's. So it's mirrored in, in kind of Lester's conditions in the last his condition in the last few levels of the game. He's he's not really in good shape the last few levels. I won't say exactly what goes on if you want to uh, go and play it yourself, but let's just say Lester's not in a great place. So finally. All the effort and suffering and pain was done, and another world released on the Amiga and the Atari ST in 1991. Now, since Delphine had to get, you know, they they had agreed to the game before it was done, uh, and they wanted to get it out, they hadn't really playtested the full game, just the first little while, the first couple of levels of it. Uh, So the two initial versions on the Amiga and the Atari ST were a little bit buggy, and not quite as smooth playing as we're used to seeing uh, of another world today. Now, the DOS, Apple II, and console versions, which came out in early 1992, uh, had most of these launch bugs fixed. The game shipped with a code wheel for copy protection purposes. Now, in North America, the game released under the title Out of This World, so as not to be confused with the then long-running soap opera entitled Another World, which for some reason I vaguely remember And uh, I actually looked it up, and that show ended in 1999, but uh, at the time, it was definitely going on. Out of This World, aka Another World, was the game, not the soap opera, (laughs) was a huge critical and player success. It's been voted as one of the best Amiga games of all time, is one of the best platformers of all time, along with Prince of Persia. It's inspired tons of game developers, including, what's his name, a Japanese guy that made Metal Gear Solid. He... uh, attributes it as one of kind of the most influential games in his life in creating Metal Gear Solid and Metal Gear in general. So you'd think all this, there should be a million versions of this game. There should be a million sequels. Well, there was one sequel to Another World entitled Heart of the Alien. It was released in 1994 only on the Sega Mega CD. This game takes place immediately after the events of the first game. You take on the role of Buddy, a.k.a. You are in search of a red-eyed alien who is responsible for the destruction of your village. Uh, This game flashes back to points before Another World, showing events leading 
up to Buddy's imprisonment in the first game. Eric Shahi was not involved in the development of the sequel. He was asked repeatedly by Interplay about his thoughts regarding what a sequel should be like. Uh, He finally relented and said, you know, it might be a good idea to remake the original game from the alien's point of view. He never meant they should make a direct sequel. He felt it would be cool to see Lester in the background fighting guards while you run around helping him and having your own battles as Buddy. Sadly, this isn't the direction they went. And while gameplay is similar to that of the first game, just wasn't as fun and ended up flopping. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So where can we get our hands on Out of This World today? Well, unlike many of the games we talk about, Another World has been readily available for a very long time. In 2006, a Windows XP version was released in celebration of the game's 15th anniversary. This version featured uh, enhanced graphics and sound, cool stuff like that. Uh, In 2011, an iOS version released, and it's currently available on the iOS App Store. In 2012, an Android version came out. You should be able to get that on Google Play. And back in April of 2013, in celebration of the 20th anniversary, a yet again upgraded version released on both Steam and GOG.com for around $10. So there are lots and lots of ways to play this game today should you have the desire to give it a whirl. Okay, email time. We got lots and lots of emails on this one, so let's get rolling. Firstly, an email from Brian. He writes, I just watched your first research video and it had to be incredibly painful for you. I have a ton of respect for the fact that you tried it without a guide. That's how we played those kinds of games back then, and I believe that's how they were intended to be played. Trial and error, and error, and error, and error, and error. After watching your video, I decided to watch a speed run to see if the solution to the part you were hung up on. It looks like the player just mastered the unforgiving controls and blazed past the floor and ceiling teeth things that drove you to quit. I personally would have rage quit, but maybe that is the Canadian version of rage quitting, or maybe you're just too nice of a guy to show rage. I kept watching and I'm sure that it would have taken hours upon hours of gameplay to figure out the solution to getting past the obstacles in that game. The speedrun only took 10 minutes and to be clear, that was without cheats or shortcuts. The player just knew the solutions to everything by heart and made zero mistakes, which is the true challenge as you know. Even with a step-by-step guide, it would take countless retries to get past all those spots that demand perfect execution of the rigid controls. I love challenging games, DuckTales or Super Mario Lost Levels or Super Mario 2 Japanese, uh, but I hate games that are only challenging because of difficult controls. Since I had already played the uh, aforementioned NES games when I tried out Out of This World as a teen, I had no patience for the controls and quit after five minutes or so. I would totally play through a version of Another World that had all the deaths removed and only the puzzles intact, but that would be a 10-minute minigame. Okay, now I feel like I'm rambling. Thanks again for the great podcast and adding the Let's Play style videos. Not enough people watch them. I feel it helps me understand the game you're talking about when I listen to the podcast. Later, Brian, aka HD Brian. Well, thank you, Brian, and I'm glad you brought up the video. So yeah, I, I know I mentioned it at the end of the show. But uh, generally, I think I've been doing it pretty consistently for the, for the past little while. Uh, I do put up, uh, I don't, I, they're not like full official, you know, this is the solution all the way through the game um, let's plays, but I do put up what I like to call research playthroughs. And uh, for Beneath the Steel Sky, last time I was able to finish the game 
And my playthrough of uh, Another World was about 40 minutes of me dying constantly. And um, yeah, you know, I do, for the most part, unless it's a game I've really played before, uh, if it's a game I haven't, like this one, I try and play it the way it was supposed to be. So I I said, you know, I'm not going to use a walkthrough. I'm just going to get as far as I can get. It'll give me an idea of the game. It'll give me an idea of how it works and all that. But yeah, I got, uh, I got a little ways in and then there's this part where you have to jump over some things and I just wasn't getting it. And yeah. So, (laughs) Hey, check out the research walkthrough or the research playthroughs. They're, they're really cool. I like it when people comment on those things on YouTube, if you guys have time, I know watching video is definitely, um, a little more time consuming and requires a little more attention than listening to a podcast, but feel free. If you want to watch them, watch them. I really enjoy doing those playthroughs. I figure I'm going to play the game anyways, so why not turn on OBS, stream to Twitch, and then throw it on YouTube? Hooray. So thanks again, Brian. Next, uh, I actually have the second part of Eric Andre's email where he talks another world. So we heard the first part at the top of the show. Here's the second part. It begins. Next up is another world. I believe this is the only game I have bought three times in three different decades. First, the DOS version in the 90s. In 2006, I got the 15th anniversary edition for Windows, uh, while my iPhone received the 20th anniversary edition a few years ago. Back in the 90s, I was never able to complete the game. I got stuck mid-game where the game opens from being very linear to opening up a bit. With the remakes, the game has become somewhat easier. Also, guides were available online to help me out. I'm sure you'll cover the technical part thoroughly. Personally, I find the polygon approach very clever, and it makes the game feel very unique. It also makes the remix very identical to the original. Looking forward to the episode. Cheers, Eric Andre Mema. P.S. I like the previously mentioned term nationally challenged when people like myself are trying to express themselves in, in English. I'm from Norway. Well, thanks, Eric Andre. And I really love I have to go back and uh, and look at who who came up with that term. It was definitely in an email and uh, I'll have to give them credit for it because uh, it's kind of become a thing with uh, with with my international international listeners. So thanks. And yeah, you know, I, I do I do enjoy the polygon approach to uh, to the graphics. It reminded me a little bit of Interstate 76, though I think this kind of uh, implementation of it, being that it's still 2D, looked a lot better than Interstate 76, but uh, very, very cool. And yeah, it does kind of help, you know, basically the upgraded versions, the upgraded graphics are just a bit less jagged than uh, <laughs> their higher resolution, but basically they're the same thing. So really, really cool. Thanks for that. Next, we have another international listener, or so I say internationally challenged listener, Miguel. Miguel writes, Hi Joe, this is Miguel Angel from Spain. I got my original copy, one of the few originals that I could get my hands on, uh, my Amiga 500, because of all the buzz around the game that came from magazines in those days. From the first cinematic, it struck me as something I had never seen in my computer. The fluid movements in sci-fi environments, the lack of dialogues, the straightforward gameplay got me by surprise. What I liked the most was that the controls changed along with the narrative in the game. My favorite moment related to that matter was the kick in the nuts you give one of the guards. Oh, how easy it is to please a teenager. I just discovered UMB two weeks ago, and I just fell in love with the format and with the tone of the show. I would, uh, would like to listen to your take on some Bitmap Brothers old classics as the uh, Speedball Saga, the Chaos Engine, and the great Xenon 2. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks so much. And, uh, you know, I, I always take suggestions to add things to the list. And yeah, the uh, the kick in the nuts. I didn't get to the kick in the nuts part myself, but I did watch a couple of speedruns and, uh, and that part is funny. So, you know, this is a game 
that's very serious in tone most of the time, but there are some injections of, of humor in there that, that do make it do make it fun. So next, we have an email from Martin, and he writes, Hello, Joe. My name is Martin, also known as Amirayat Akago. That's pronounced Amirayat Akago. There we go. Uh, I'm an avid retro PC gaming enthusiast from the Netherlands. Lots of international folk today. Uh, and I just wanted to tell you that I love your show. I found it a while ago through some fellow retro gaming friends on Twitter, and I've been slowly catching up with every episode over the past few weeks. Last one I listened to was the one on Myst, which is a game that, while I personally don't really enjoy, I can certainly appreciate its place in history and all the work that went into it, especially after hearing you talk about its development story. That's one thing I really love about your show, the way you go into a lot of detail while still keeping things interesting and entertaining. Occasionally, I feel maybe you give kind of a bit Sorry. Occasionally, I feel maybe you kind of give away a bit too much in terms of story, but that's probably just a personal niggle because I like to go into new things mostly blind so I can be surprised by everything I experience for the first time. Anyway, on the subject of Another World, it's one of my all-time favorite games. I really love the cinematic platformer genre thanks to games like Prince of Persia, the Oddworld series, and this game in particular. Uh, because it really manages to draw you in from the first minute with that amazing intro, and it just drops you into this amazingly atmospheric world with all of these intense action scenes and hostile creatures, and uh, you really have to think on your feet to stay alive. I remember seeing it back in the early 90s, when I must have been about five or six years old, and it utterly fascinated my younger self, since I was used to mostly seeing extremely static, blocky graphics like in the early King's Quest and Leisure Suit Larry games that me, my parents, and my brother played a lot at the time. But this was a different beast altogether. It was almost like seeing a short animated movie on a PC screen with a really cool kind of atmospheric soundtrack, fluid animation, and shifting camera angles. And for some reason, I just got a kick out of seeing Lester kind of lounge back in his lab chair and pull open a can of pop while he was watching his experiment unfold. Though beyond that part, I didn't really experience a lot of the game myself back then, because it frankly scared the crap out of me with the constant deaths and the poisonous slugs and the huge alien lion monster. It wasn't until years later, when I'd grown up a little, that I properly got to play it and I could really appreciate it for what it was. It's, it was still balls hard, which I'm sure you found out firsthand, but uh, it helps that I had access to a walkthrough I found on some shareware CD-ROM somewhere, so that at least, so that at least made things a little easier. Uh, I don't know how I would have been able to figure out that gun could also make shields or fire big blasts otherwise, but the thing is, even if it is ridiculously difficult, unforgiving, and unintuitive, it's still the kind of game where you want to keep going just to find out what other amazing set pieces await you, what kind of beautiful environments or cutscenes are still ahead, and how it's all going to end. And really, the climax, while maybe a bit ambiguous, is one of my favorites in any game. It's a shame they had to go and ruin it with the mediocre sequel Heart of the Alien on Sega CD, but I personally like to pretend that never happened. Anyways, I could go on talking for hours about all of this. So let me just say that I'm looking forward to the new episode and hearing your own thoughts on the game. And I'll be sure to keep listening to whatever else you'll put out in the future. So keep on trucking, keep the retro gaming goodness coming and keeping awesome. And incidentally, I have a YouTube channel where I post video game reviews and other such thing. So in case you or anyone listening want to check that out, you can find it here at youtube.com slash user slash MA riot. I'll link that in the show notes because it's kind of long. Uh, take care and we'll be seeing each other out there somewhere. Kind regards, Martin, Emmy Wright, Akago, Emmy I think. Anyways, <laughs> thanks.
Foreign names, difficult to say. I know mine's Mastriani, which isn't easy to say, but it doesn't make me better at reading other people's long last names. So finally, with regard to emails, uh, we have Chris who writes, Greetings, Joe. It's been a while since my last email, Interstate 76, but I couldn't let this show go by without writing in. Thank you for providing such an enjoyable, lighthearted, and informative podcast. I look forward to each and every show, even if the topic is something unfamiliar. My experience with Out of This World started with it becoming available on a local BBS and somehow, someway, ending up on my 386SX during the summer of 1992. I knew nothing about the game except for a brief but well-written synopsis contained in the .nfo file. Remember those? I certainly do remember the .nfo file. I installed the game, watched the introduction, but didn't get any farther. I rejoined the game with my best friend a few days later, and we were hooked. The intro was reminiscent of a comic book or graphic novel, but with little or no, little to no text or explanation. It was captivating and a bit strange. Neither of us had seen anything like it. We muddled our way through the first few screens and gradually figured out gameplay, controls, and timing. The animation was fluid and lifelike, and the discovery aspect of the game, aided by the fact that we had no manual or supporting documentation, made every accomplishment seem huge. So we embraced it all, and man, did we die. Often. Certainly, there were times we got frustrated and stuck, but we continued... Uh, we continued to play and kept after it. Ultimately, Jahi and I didn't finish the game that summer, but uh, that didn't detract from the experience. We had way too much fun, and the game left an impression that carries through to the present day. I'm fairly certain mine is not the only email for you this week, so I'll close with a brief anecdote. Farther along, Lester is imprisoned and sprung by an alien ally, and before he runs off screen, utters the phrase, Maxaruba. I think you mean this. Yeah. To this day, whether via email, text, phone, or face-to-face, there's a good chance Jahi or I end the conversation with Maxruba. Thanks again for the podcast, eagerly anticipating the dev story in particular for Out of This World. So thanks for that one, Chris. Uh, you know, yeah, that's good. And I think I've talked about that before with some other games of mine. Uh you know, that my friends and I would kind of take the name, you know, take lines from the game and quote them here and there. And we do the same thing with like the Simpsons and stuff from old Battlestar Galactica and, you know, things like that are really cool. And yeah, you know, I love, I, I did my share of, of grabbing games off of BBSs back in the day. And, you know, I know it wasn't supposed to, but Hey, I was a kid who the hell knew any better. And it was interesting because you'd get them and there'd be either no documentation or an NFO file. And maybe there were like some key commands in there that, you know, they kind of say push up to do this, push down to do this. But it was almost like there was a whole extra layer of discovery because you first of all had all the discovery in the game, but then you also didn't know what the controls did. Luckily, this game is fairly straightforward. But, um, you know, even when I played it on the 20th anniversary edition from Steam, man, you know, I didn't open the manual at first. I think it was there in PDF or something, or no, I think in the 20th anniversary edition in the options, it shows you what the numbers do. But again, there's no like text. It's just kind of images. And uh, eventually I figured out that you could hold down the button and do stuff. And, you know, even there where I had bought the game and the documentation was there, it wasn't clear. (laughs) So there was still that extra aspect of discovery. So that's it for written emails, but before we get to the final verdict, I also got two voicemails. I told you guys a lot of interaction this week. Really, really happy about it. So first, a voicemail from yet another Chris. This is Chris Lapine, or Artful Gamer on Twitter, saying, Hi, Joe. I'm finally able to send you a quick voicemail. Just want to say I really love Out of This World or Another World. It was my favorite DOS game from the uh, 1990s. 
Um, back in the old days, I played it on my Amstrad 8 MHz 286, and um, I remember it running very smoothly in terms of the animation, but the um, uh, the sound was quite you know rudimentary because I only had a PC speaker, and the frame rate was quite low, so everything kind of ran in slow motion, which ironically made some of the puzzles a lot easier to solve because uh, I could kind of cheat with the slow motion frame rate. Uh, when I finally got to play it on a neighbor's PC, they had a 486. Um, <laughs> the game got a lot harder. Um, in terms of memories, I remember copying the copy protection wheel for a friend of mine uh, using a pen and paper and kind of laboriously copying every little symbol. I've got it right here, you can't see this, uh, which took me a very, very long time. Um, as an adult, I've really come to appreciate uh, Eric Chahi's internal game editor. Uh, which blends animation and coding. It's just amazing. So thanks again, Joe. Uh, love the podcast, and I can't wait to send you another voicemail for a different game. Well, thank you, Chris. And and yeah, you know, the more I read, and I was actually watching, uh, again, the 20th anniversary edition comes with a, a making of video, which uh, which was an interview with uh, Eric Chahi and uh, and Jean-Francois, whose name, last name I can't remember, the guy, that his friend that did the music. And uh, they were actually showing some of that uh the internal game editor and, you know, you'd have Lester's face there and you would kind of like futz around with his hair and move it around. And then all of a sudden drag it and just start running script to go to, to make the game go. And then, you know, Lester's standing in, in a cut scene with, you know, messed up hair. And I think that was, it's awesome. Like it was, it's just kind of like this immediate feedback, like, Oh, that thing didn't work very well. You didn't have to, you know, go back and, you know, change code and do things and then recompile it and redeploy and then run it and get to the point where you need it to go and blah, blah, blah. It was just like, change this thing, start running the script and, you know, the game would just pick up from wherever you needed it to. And I thought that was really cool. So thank you for that email. So now finally, our last email from Tomer. Hi, Joe, and greetings from Israel. Uh, my name is Tomo, and I just wanted to tell you a little bit about my experiences with Another World. So as it happens, I was, I think, seven or eight when uh, we went to visit a neighbor, neighbor of ours who had a Commodore Amiga, the original Amiga 1000. And, uh, you know, up until that point, we used to play things like Defender of the Crown and uh, Turrican and other Amiga classics. But at that point, he got a new game called Another World. And... I gotta tell you, we were absolutely floored. This game was beyond fantastic. I mean, it was the first game that was actually, you know, a bona fide cinematic experience. The graphics were just beyond anything we've ever seen up until that point. And the music was also fantastic. So, you know, there's a lot of fond childhood memories. And uh, I played a few rounds. The game was very challenging for the time. And I kind of forgot about it for two to three years until I got my hands on the PC version, which was actually an amazingly faithful conversion. Uh, but the game was still ridiculously challenging. I don't think I've ever even got close to finishing it until, you know, until I was probably 12, 15, uh, and managed to wrap my head around, you know, what's, what's actually expected, how to chart progress, you know, uh, doing the logical thing that may not necessarily be the logical thing when you're eight years old. So uh, the creator of this game, Eric, uh, I'm probably mispronouncing his last name, Eric Chahi, uh, is actually an astoundingly, you know, astoundingly brilliant developer, creator, artist. He, he pretty much 
did the whole game on his own from scratch. And beyond the fact that the game used uh, a custom vector graphics format, which makes it look really, really fantastic, especially for the time, it was actually really, really complex, like behind the scenes. It was implemented as a kind of virtual machine that executes the game, which made porting it to other platforms relatively easy. There's a blog post on this that I'll have to look up and send you along with this voicemail. Uh, but the bottom line is, this game was just well, well, well ahead of its time. And uh, that's that's pre pretty much the sum of my experiences with the game. There's also the, the 50th anniversary edition uh, that's been sold through uh, GOG.com, I believe, for the last few years. And it's really, really good. I mean, it's extremely faithful to the original, but still highly playable and lots and lots of fun. Um, so, you know, this is a brilliant game. Go ahead and play it. Cheers. Have a nice day. Well, thank you so much for that, Tomer. And it's... Uh yeah, you know that that that's that's really cool, and uh, I'm I'm glad you mentioned kind of that uh, the stuff from that blog post about kind of the back end be very making things kind of very easy to port, and you know that's a lot of thing things that a lot of people, even developers, don't really think of these days. They're just kind of like, I want to make a game, I'm gonna make it do stuff, it'll run on this, and blah blah, blah. and they don't kind of do this separation of you know the engine from the assets unless they're already using something like Unity or. Uh, you know, the Unreal Engine, where the engine's already packaged, if they're building a game from scratch, it does take a, you know, extra effort up front to make it modular. But that just, it does pay off in the end. And that's kind of like, you know, the holy grail of, of separating presentation from logic and business rules and, and all that stuff in any kind of, you know, programming project. But I think in, in games, especially where you want to support multiple platforms, you're not using kind of one of these modern prepackaged engines that uh, you just have to think of. So really, really great. Thank you, Tomer. And thank you, everyone, for all those emails. My Lord, that was so awesome. I'm very, very glad. I hope everyone listening enjoyed all that. And uh, guys, please, please keep sending in stuff like that. It's so, so, so great. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So does another world hold up today? Well, like everyone else said, and... I might have hinted a little bit. Yes, it absolutely does hold up today. It's a brilliant game. However, I will say that there is one caveat to this. The caveat is that, as I've said and as other people have said, this game can be incredibly frustrating, especially if you're not prepared for it. I mean, this game is soul-crushingly, unforgivingly difficult. You will die, and you will die often. I know this is sort of the intention, but if you watch my research playthrough on YouTube, you'll see at one point I almost do want to throw my Xbox 360 controller against the wall. I'm kind of smashing on the control, smashing on the button, saying, I pushed a button, I pushed a freaking button. Uh, and, you know, that is something I didn't mention throughout the show thus far. Now, unlike most platformers, this game features what is known as step-based timing, which means that if you hit the jump button... But Lester is walking. He waits to finish his walk animation before he jumps. This isn't like in Mario Brothers where if you hit jump and Mario's in the middle of a step, he's just going to jump. So if your timing or your positioning is at all off, you will not make your jump and you will die. <laughs> now, with this in mind and also keeping in mind that things like roguelikes and you know things like Dark Souls and games like that are all the rage right now. 
This game is incredible. In the context of the time, this is one of those games that is immensely ahead of its time. Games from 1991 should not look this good. The music, the art, the general ambiance, the cinematography, all these aspects, all these visual, artistic, gameplay aspects of this game are incredible. Now, in the 20th anniversary edition, I suspect also in the 15th, you have the option of flipping back and forth from, you know, kind of the high-res graphics to the original graphics. Even without these graphical updates, the original game looks incredible. Even today, if I didn't know any better and say I had gotten this game as a gift off of a Steam sale and I had never heard of it before in my life and it wasn't called 20th Anniversary Edition, there was no indication that this was an old game. I would think that this was a current day retro style platformer. This is an important game and it's a lot of fun. The other thing I'll say as other people have said, is once you figure it out and you get pretty good at the game, you can actually finish it reasonably in about 10 to 20 minutes, probably 15, 20 minutes. It's actually really short. The fastest speedrun I came across without trying too hard gets through in eight minutes. Now, it's the trial and error that actually make the game fun while at the same time making the game immensely frustrating. So if you don't mind dying over and over and over and over and over and over again, I highly recommend this game. However, if you're prone to smashing things in frustration, maybe just watch a video, give the actual playthrough a pass. You'll still be able to understand kind of all the the coolness and the history and everything in the game. It might not be worth the frustration if you've got a bit of a short fuse. Have you ever wanted to share something with someone just because? Well, we do a lot. So we started a podcast about, well, whatever we want. My name is Joyce. And I'm her lovely husband, Al. Uh, Well, you know what I mean. Hey, it's me, Al. Listen, I'm hijacking the Just Because podcast to start a new series all about the wonderful world of voice acting. Each episode, I'll have a professional voice actor on and ask them some serious, hard-hitting questions to get to the bottom of this in a world. You know, world. If you've ever wanted to know about the inner workings of this magical and mystical business, tune into Just Because, inside the voiceover studio. Tune in at justbecausepodcast.com and on iTunes. So, that's it for another one. Thanks to everyone, as I said, for contributing this week. I didn't realize this was going to be such a popular game in everyone's minds, though I probably shouldn't be surprised. Uh, anyways, next week, I'm going to do something a little weird. I'm going to cover a game that I know almost nothing about. I just kind of heard a bit of chatter on it, uh, about it on Twitter, went to look it up and go, ooh, totally missed out on this one. So I'm going to cover 1994's Little Big Adventure by Adeline Software. So looking forward to that as always. You guys can send me your emails and your audio comments to podcast.umbcast.com. Really good stuff this week. Hope to get more going forward. If anyone else feels like they have more thoughts on uh, another world, you can still send them in. I'll play them at the beginning of the next show. Aside from that, anything else you want to talk about? A little big adventure, blah, 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 podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks as always to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him over at moyomultimedia.com. You can check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. Me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. That's billybob476. 
You can also find the show on Steam at steamcommunity.com slash groups slash UMBcast and on YouTube at youtube.com slash UMBcast where I've started putting up all that research stuff that I talked about before. Tons of fun over there. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stream us live at Stitcher. Leave me some reviews. I love those five stars if you think I deserve them. So that is that. And I will see you all next time for a little big adventure here in the upper memory block. Battle control terminated. My Zuba. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join the unity.